0: feeling pretty overwhelmed lately but also feeling so much support and encouragement to keep going i love the messages sharing what resonates with you it really is so meaningful to hear that these words and stories and experiences are helping you feel seen or feel connected or just pick up tips to use in your teaching or art practices So, thank you for reaching out and letting me know when something is helpful. I also wanted to share a few thank yous and shout outs to some amazing supporters of this podcast. Jeannie Siegler, my high school art teacher, has been cheering me on and offering support in so many ways. Thank you, Jeannie. I want to say, Miss Siegler. Holly Romano, also thank you for your support. I'm really late in sharing, but I am so grateful for your help and encouragement. And if you're listening, you can check out what Holly's doing on Instagram at Holly Romano Artist. Another huge thank you to Vienne Reya, who is a new Patreon supporter. That's right, I have a Patreon you can support for as little as $1 per month and get a shout out just like this. I'm also offering some fun thank you options at higher donation tiers like stickers, tote bags, lesson plans, ad-free episodes, and a sneak peek at the podcast publishing calendar. That is when I've got it figured out ahead of time. <laughs> Go to patreon.com teachingartistpodcast. Another very belated shout out to Ajua Burroughs, who was a guest on the podcast. Go listen if you have not yet listened to episode 18. And Ajua has been supporting this podcast through Anchor, which you can do by clicking the link in the show notes or going to anchor.fm slash teachingartistpodcast slash support. Thank you, Ajua, for all the encouragement and the help to keep this project going. Ah, So much love and support. And it really does help. You know, supporting financially makes a big difference. It lets me hire editors who can help me take some of the workload off of myself so that I can continue to do this and push these episodes out every week. Part of the overwhelm is that I'm just juggling a lot. I'm teaching, I'm parenting through a pandemic. I'm now running this podcast as well as an online exhibition space and I'm kind of ramping up my own art career and then also I have taken on another freelance at art education job. So <laughs> lots going on. So any support that really goes right back into this project is super, super appreciated. And I love, you know, even if you don't have the means to financially support, I just love hearing from you or seeing you share what's going on here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. On to the episode. Our featured artist this week is Lisa Foster. Her historical figure series was inspired by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like many, she had long been inspired by Justice Ginsburg's persona and accomplishments. Lisa found the images of flowers, gifts, and cards laid by mourners outside the Supreme Court moving and beautiful. This collection of items created a kind of portrait of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of what she had accomplished, the lives she touched, and the legacy she left behind. The portrait Lisa made of her soon after is a silhouette filled in with flowers, patterns, and other images from the reproduction quilting fabrics that are Lisa's primary medium. The portrait is titled, How Fortunate I Was to Be Alive and a Lawyer. The full quote is how fortunate I was to be alive and a lawyer when, for the first time in United States history, it became possible to urge successfully before legislatures and courts the equal citizenship stature of women and men as a fundamental constitutional principle. That RBG portrait sparked something, and Lisa continued the series. She made portraits of Eleanor Roosevelt and Harriet Tubman, styled in the same fashion. Both have direct quotes as their titles. The portrait of Eleanor is titled, The Future Belongs to Those Who Believe in the Beauty of Their Dreams. And the fabric painting of Harriet is called, Every Great Dream Begins with a Dreamer, from the quote, Every Great Dream Begins with a Dreamer always remember you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. Lisa continues this series and has since made portraits of other historical women, including Mary Cassatt, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Lucy Stone. Lisa says, I feel as though my portraits stand in contrast to society's tendency to judge women on their appearances by eliminating those appearances. My goal is to portray my subjects in a more reverential and holistic manner. These paintings are memorials, installations made from love and sisterhood and reproduction quilting fabrics. They are meditations on each life, an imprint of what was. My work speaks to the impermanence and non-self nature of each of us. These women can be held or seen no longer but their accomplishments have changed the world and their words can still inspire and comfort us. Such beautiful and moving work. Head to our blog to check it out at teachingartistpodcast.com slash featured-artists. And I will link to that as well. Now, would you like to be featured? You can submit work at Podcast.com slash opportunities. Jessica Kitsman and I connected through Stay Home Gallery, where we are both represented for 2021. Ah, it has been such a joy to get to know her and her art practice through the gallery, and it was so nice connecting about teaching in this conversation. Jessica talked about her path to teaching through AmeriCorps and how being in a classroom full of kids making art reignited her art practice. She shared how discovering tab and shifting to a choice-based pedagogy felt right and led her to expand her own art career as well. She said, opening up freedom for my students did the same for me. And being intentional about our choices as teachers and holding ourselves accountable for who, what, and how we share with students is so important. I loved hearing about her work and the ideas she's exploring through materials with so much embedded meaning. She uses thrifted fabrics, National Geographic magazines handed down from her grandparents, and scraps with layers of meaning. The way she has shifted her practice over time was inspiring. Jessica moved from photography to painting to playing with materials inspired by her students. She shared how her concepts and the way she was writing about her work drove her work to shift and pushed her to explore textiles. It felt powerful in vulnerability to hear how her use of scraps is a metaphor for her own life. She said, I was in pieces also, and she talked about putting those pieces back together in this textile practice that is so connected to her collage work. I'm excited to see how her work evolves. Jessica Kitzman lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and currently teaches photography at Richfield High School. Jessica has taught art since earning a Master's of Arts in Teaching at the School of Visual Arts in New York City in 2009, and she's taught all grades K-12. through 12. Jessica is a working artist represented by Stay Home Gallery in Tennessee. She works primarily with collage and textiles, exploring personal and cultural history and the identity tensions of queer single motherhood. She has been a contributing art educator for two publications from the Teachers College Press at Columbia, Studio Thinking from the Start and Engaging Learners Through Art Making. Both of these publications frame the classroom as the studio and the child as the artist and advocate for creative agency and power for all kids, a value central to her teaching practice. Let's hear from Jessica. Jessica. I am here with Jessica Kitzman, and I am so excited to hear more about your art practice and your teaching. And I like to just start kind of with that background. Could you kind of walk us through your story? Like how did you become an artist and a teacher?
1: Sure, that is definitely a winding road. So I will try and tell tell us a straight line version of that story. But I mean, the short answer of when did I become an artist is just that I always have been. I don't, it's always been part of my identity. I was always making things and drawing things as a kid. I was a very shy kid and my early friendships, I remember kind of starting out of people coming over and saying, oh, did you draw that or... Just being able to connect with other kids through whatever it was that I was drawing or friendship bracelets or little crafts here and there. So it's always been a point of connection for me. And I think that's definitely what I'm seeking in my art career as an adult as well. My grandpa was an artist. He was a prolific painter. He just passed away this fall, but he was painting up until a couple months before he died. So art was in the fabric of my family forever. As far as when, when it came into my life, it's really hard to say it's something that's, that's just in my family. My mom and my grandma are both quilters and They picked that up later in life, but when I was a kid, there was always sewing around and little projects here and there, and that was always really encouraged. As far as when did teaching come into my life, that part is also a little bit hard to pinpoint. I was the kid who got my Red Cross babysitting certificate, little card that I could carry around in my wallet. I think I was maybe 12 or something. So I've i always loved working with little kids. I was a summer camp counselor at the end of high school and throughout college. And then when I graduated with my BFA in photography, I didn't really know what to do next. And so I served a year with AmeriCorps and I was in an elementary school as a tutor mentor just working with a caseload of 12 students for a whole school year. So that was really my first experience with public education. And I learned so much that year. And I really developed a passion for social justice within the educational system. And that kind of drove me to become an art teacher. So I went on to get my master's after that year and it was a master's of art in teaching. So I got my master's degree and my teaching license all in one year. And that was at the school of visual arts in New York city, which that was another pivotal year for me. And I would say until I kind of stopped making art after, after my, my BFA I didn't know where to go with it, and I wasn't finding those same connections with people through my art. So that really stopped until I started teaching, and I there was something about being in a classroom of kids all making art that just lit me up, and that really propelled me back into my own art practice in a very different way. And it's hard for me to even articulate what it was, but something opened up for me in teaching kids and being around all of that really free creative energy and that was a just a gateway into this new art pra- practice for myself that, that I really hadn't had before.
0: Yeah, I love that as like thinking about teaching as the gateway drug, Yeah, <laughs> it's like the gateway to making.
1: Yeah, I mean, making art can be a really isolating practice. And and then just the opportunity to be in a room full of other people creating, other kids creating just opens up so much because you're surrounded by everyone else's creative process. And there's so many more pathways when that happens.
0: Yeah, it is so inspiring. I know I feel that way too. And I, it was cool to hear that you did AmeriCorps. I actually also did AmeriCorps right after college. Oh, that's
1: so cool. Where did you... Where did you serve?
0: I was in, I was doing like community organizing around water quality in New Jersey.
1: Oh, wow. Was it a one year or a two year service? Yeah, it was one year. Okay. Yeah. I credit that year for just so many things in my life. And I always say that I feel like everyone should do a year Of AmeriCorps sometime in their life because it just taught me so much about my community, about the structure of our our country, the things that are really most important to me. I just gained so much out of that one
0: year. And so much, I mean, I feel like you were also talking about how, like, you weren't really sure what direction to go. I felt that way too. Like, I wasn't really sure, you know, I had. I was very idealistic and I had all these sort of things I hoped for, but I didn't really know how to achieve anything. Yeah. So having, yeah, like having that time to kind of figure it out Mm -hmm. was really helpful. Yeah. I think when
1: you're young and right out of college, you have all of these dreams and, you know, some days, but you really don't understand the pathway to those, those dreams days. And so and when you're that young, you want everything to happen immediately. So mm-hmm. just learning that everything takes time and that dreams take time
0: mm-hmm.
1: is just a really
0: important piece of that for me. That took a long time. Yeah, yeah I feel like I'm still still fighting that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I get impatient with the, the process of things. Okay.
0: Yeah, definitely. And do you feel, like, I guess you've talked about how your teaching really does inform your art making and maybe not inform what you're doing, but just like push you forward? Do you feel like you know, once you kind of got back to making, has teaching been helpful or has it been like, how do they kind of feed each other making and teaching?
1: Yeah, well, I would say at different parts of my, so I've been teaching now for 11 years. In the first couple years, I, if I compare what I was making at home versus what I was teaching or, you know, my, my art life alongside my teaching life. Those first couple years, I was just very overwhelmed with my role as a teacher. And so much of that time was devoted to sketching in a sketchbook. If the students were watching a video about an artist, I was filling up sketchbook pages. I was filling up sketchbook pages with note about kids of new strategies to try, new lessons I wanted to try, different artists I wanted to show them. So I have, I think, three or four sketchbooks that are just packed with notes and drawings. And some of the pages are really elaborate. Other pages are super quick. But um, it's so cool to look back at that time. I had never really kept a sketchbook before. And so I can tell that that was just a really intense transform transformative period for me. And that, I think, really propelled me into other processes. Before, before teaching, I was really mainly in the dark room i was a photographer so i i wasn't doing things um with paint and colored pencils and crayons and all these things that i was now teaching in the classroom so just kind of letting myself play with all of all of those things was was really important and then about i want to say 3 years into my teaching practice I learned about a pedagogy called Teaching for Artistic Behavior, and I adapted that philosophy into my classroom. It's a it's a, a student choice-based philosophy. If you really boil it down, there's really three pillars. The first is that the child is the artist. So my role as an art teacher is not to dream up the project that the child will replicate, my job as the art teacher is to give the child the space and an opportunity to make the child's dreams and ideas come to life. So the child is the artist, the, the classroom is the studio. So I was setting up studio centers for, for kids to explore using their own ideas. And the third pillar is what do artists do? So really looking at behaviors and um, curiosities and patterns that, that artists use in their creative process. So opening up that freedom for my students did the same thing for my own art practice. That was such an explosion in my own art practice. It's really cool for me to reflect on the parallels between those two times. I started painting so much during that time and filling more sketchbooks but my sketchbooks became more about my own art instead of about you know my day-to-day experience as a teacher Um, and so yeah it it was just so cool to see that freedom open up for myself at the same time that that i was trying to open that up for for the kids
0: yeah that's amazing i feel like i've talked to several people who once they discovered tab and i feel the same way it just felt like why was i not doing this always like this just feels like this is how it should be
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i just kept having this terrible feeling that i was teaching in a way that artists don't work artists don't follow the rules artists do not want step-by-step tutorials Artists are craving freedom and self-expression and connection and community and collaboration. And all of those things can really happen in a tab environment and not really in the more teacher-directed, project-driven way that I was working before.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting, too, how... I feel like if you are making art and you, you know, feel like you are an artist as a teacher, you just, I don't know, everybody that has been like pretty active in the studio that I've spoken to really gravitates towards tab or at least like some level of choice for exactly that reason like feeling like you're treating your students like artists as well and that you as an artist would want to have that freedom right
1: right my so I mentioned that my grandpa was an artist but he was also a a lifelong art teacher he taught high school and then he went on to teach at the college level And I think his his longest position was at the Iowa State University. I think he was there for 35 years. But when I went to get my license to teach, he said, Jessica, if you are teaching art, you better be making art. You have no business teaching if you are not making. And he, he just was so... I remember how firm he was on that point and in many following conversations. And I think that really was a big part of, you know, that was another big part of my art life, continuing to grow alongside my teaching was with that advice.
0: Yeah, that's so powerful to hear too, from someone who's had all of that experience. Yeah. What kind of work did he make?
1: He was a painter, mainly in acrylic. There are a few he did some woodcuts in the, in the 60s mainly and in his earlier career was working just with whatever paint. So there's a lot of his early stuff that's with like house paint and just found paint. I, I think there's a lot of texture in my work and I like to think that some of that rubbed off because he was also really a very textural painter. He added sand to a lot of his paintings, so he would mix sand into the paint itself and then paint that onto the canvas. Some of his paintings look like they're carved into stone. Yeah, so he was a painter. He has lots of, lots of imaginary cityscapes that are very Paul Clay-esque. He he also spent a huge chunk of his career studying Mesoamerican art and architecture. So he would go down to South America and Mexico a couple times a year. He made several trips
0: down there. So that was another big influence on his artwork and just his research and his teachings. And did he bring that back and share those experiences? yeah he he published some research on the architecture
1: of ancient mayan civilizations and so that's i i have his manuscript from from that work and i've i've been reading through it this fall so it's just really really cool to read through what got him going and what got him inspired in his work and it's just such a cool legacy to to have now to kind of look through and and connect with now that he's he's gone. Oh,
0: uh, that's amazing. Thank you. And I do want to get into your artwork, but I have a couple more like teaching questions. Sure. So, one is what your like what is your sort of teaching situation right now and would you have any sort of advice or tips to share about how you're handling teaching through a pandemic?
1: So I am teaching photography at a high school right now. And and actually, I just started at this school this fall. So I would say my biggest, biggest challenge right now is relationship building with kids because I don't have a past relationship to start from. I'm building that in this distance learning world. And that's been really challenging. But my advice, and I don't know, kind of what is keeping me afloat, is just keep it simple. I think kids are just as overwhelmed as teachers are right now. And the more I can streamline what I'm asking of them and, and streamline what I am putting in front of them, The easier it is on both of us. So that's kind of my
0: compass right now is simplicity. Yeah, I think that's great advice right now.
1: It's really easy for me to get carried away when I'm planning lessons. I just, you know, have a starting idea and then can easily get carried down a rabbit hole of, oh, let's look at this artist and that one and let's do this activity but all of that is too much right now. It's really just about let's let's get to the point. Let's get through
0: the week together. I feel the same like I I've been trying to focus on what can like spark some joy, what can express some emotions and kind of get them out and how can we do it as simply as possible? Yes. And have there been any sort of like resources or tools or even books, anything like that, that you would recommend that have been helpful?
1: As far as distance learning goes.
0: Yeah, well, I guess resources and tools. If there's anything that you're using that would be helpful for that, and then if you would have like books to recommend for just teaching in general,
1: nothing comes to mind as far. I'm a really low tech person, so my keep it simple advice it goes for the tools I'm using as well. I'm I'm living in my Google Drive right now, and I I use Google Slides and Google Docs for kids, mm-hmm. and they complete assignments by either commenting on those or uploading photos to a a slides presentation. So I really think, I mean, there's so much creativity out there as far as different tech tools to use right now. I'm overwhelmed by that. And I know that some of my students are too, of, of trying to navigate the ways that their teachers are asking them to do things. I mean the kids that I teach have eight different teachers teaching in eight different ways. So I'm really trying yeah. to eliminate some of that and just stick to the basics.
0: That makes a lot of sense.
1: And I know I mean not everyone is teaching at a at a public school with, you know, those kind of parameters, but that that's kind of the situation that I'm in.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's helpful just to hear like you don't have to go use all of the tools that are available.
1: I think one thing that gets me really excited each week, I love teaching about contemporary artists and art history. So one assignment that I have every week is an artist snapshot And so that's been really fun. And so I just, I find videos, I try to find videos where the artist is talking, is being interviewed, or maybe a family member of the artist if they're no longer living. I find so much value in teaching living artists and contemporary artists to kids, though that they can really connect with
0: and see as real people. And with those, I've been thinking about sort of the context in which we're sharing artists. So I'm curious how you like introduce those artists and share their work. So
1: like I said, I try and find a video where they can explain their own work. And then since I'm teaching photography, I also find just examples of their work to put into those assignments. So I'm keeping it pretty simple just in that way. I haven't taken any like virtual museum tours with kids yet, but I know a lot of art teachers that do that and and find a lot of value in that. I would love to, do kind of a zoom guest speaker if i i i have that kind of on the my list of things that i want to do but are not urgent to plan so it it keeps getting pushed back but that's something that i really want to do right now
0: that would be so that's exciting to like it's one thing to see a video of the artist but it takes it kind of to the next level when there's interaction
1: Yeah. And I I also love videos or opportunities for kids to see studios and see kind of the space that an artist works in and kind of demystify some of those barriers that we imagine or that can keep us from seeing artists as people and relatable.
0: And I feel like we're kind of talking about this idea of like representation. But one thing that I've been asking and it was pointed out to me that this is like the buzzword right now which is not the intention just how to create an anti-racist environment in your teaching and in your you know your classroom even if that classroom is a digital space so I guess what tips would you have around that and you know what are you doing what are your challenges all of that
1: I mean, that is another reason to that I think it's important to teach contemporary artists. Because if you go to too many art history resources are loaded with the same dead white men of the European art tradition, or they are showing artifacts from ancient cultures. And so I see so much value in number one, holding yourself accountable as a teacher and saying, okay, if I'm going to show 10 artists this year, being intentional about who those 10 people are. Are you representing people of different artist identities? And that includes race, that includes sexual identity, that includes gender and non-binary artists. That can include so many different things, but it really does take intention because if you have grown up In our current and recent past art education system, you you have learned all of those dead white men, and that's what you're going to gravitate towards unless you work against that. I just yesterday stopped by. I was donating some artwork to a raffle for a local coffee shop. And it's connected to Native American gallery in Minneapolis called All My Relations Gallery. And they show all contemporary work by Native artists. And I was just talking with the man that was there about he he was telling me that I sorry to go back I had asked if they ever do field trips and he was like oh yeah we love we love having field trips I remember we had this one artist who who would always do artist talks for field trips and she would say she would hold up one of her pieces and ask them is this Native American artwork he said you know it didn't have any feathers or you know, any of the stereotypical Native visuals in it. And his point was, it's Native American if a Native American person made it. And there's just so many things that we need to dismantle there and and teach our kids that Native American artists are living and working and making so much work, whether it's about their culture or not.
0: That's one culture, one demographic that So often gets relegated to the past.
1: And so I think we have a responsibility as art teachers to be going out and connecting with living artists that fall into those different identities. We have a responsibility to break down those walls that that falls on us. And when we do that, it's much easier to pass authentic
0: teaching down to our kids. I love that talk about intentionality and like holding ourselves accountable as teachers. And that's the hard work that, <laughs> that we have to put in. I would love to hear more about your artwork as well. Sure. I asked this question and I always feel like it's hard because I struggle with it, but <laughs> maybe that's just me. Could you describe your work for someone who hasn't seen it? Sure. I think when I was
1: talking about kind of my teaching and my art making and just the lines between them. I mentioned that I started painting and I painted for probably about five years, mainly in acrylic alongside some watercolor too. I do still use watercolor. I don't use acrylic. I don't know that I'll ever go back, honestly. About 18 months ago, I started going back to textile work, which is something I've always embroidered. When I was a kid, I loved to cross stitch. I loved to make friendship bracelets. I mentioned my mom and my grandma were always had sewing around, and they're now quilters. So that's been a constant presence kind of in the background for me. And about 18 months ago, I started making almost sewn paintings. So they, they hang in, in, on a wall and kind of present as a painting, but it's all hand-stitched embroidery and different found textiles and embellishments. And the composition is all sewn. There's no paint involved. I'm really drawn to bright colors and then also natural colors, so I think I really love mixing and matching from those two palettes and combining colors that maybe don't usually go together and just really clashing and mixing it up. I also am really drawn to texture, as I was mentioning before, so there's a lot of texture involved in my work too. So... To describe it to someone who has never seen it, it would just be loud, bright, textural phone paintings. And then I also do a lot of collage work and, and that work, I, I'm starting to see more similarities the longer I'm doing both of these bodies of work kind of side by side. I used to think they were totally separate, but the the ideas and the themes that I'm working with in both uh, mediums, are they are related. And so the longer I'm, I'm working, the more connections I'm seeing. And I don't know, a couple years from now, maybe they'll merge. Maybe some of the things I'm doing with collage will start to happen with fabrics and embroidery and maybe vice versa. Some of the shapes that I'm working with in my textile work will start to happen in collage form. I'm not sure.
0: I was going to say I already see connections, like the way that you work with fabric feels similar to collage in some ways. Yeah. And like the layering you do with paper too is like so textural.
1: Everything is, seems to be about texture and color for me, no matter what I'm working with.
0: Totally. And you definitely see that coming through. Thank you. Could you share a little bit about the ideas behind your work? Yes.
1: Okay, so the move to textiles was not completely accidental. Some of the things I was thinking about while I was painting started to drive me in that direction. I was starting to feel like very really disconnected from the the acrylic process, very frustrated by it. I wasn't getting a lot of joy out of it. It felt like work. I wasn't getting it to do what I wanted it to do. I never felt like my artist statements really stood up against what people saw when they looked at my work. So there was a real disconnect there. And I started to think about, you know, a lot of the ideas that I was putting into my artist statement were about my own identity as a woman artist, as a queer artist, as a, as a mother artist, and just these tensions between all of those identities and how they fit into the art world and what I want to say in that conversation. And so I started really wanting to bring textiles back into the work. And I just got became obsessed with this idea of sewing onto the canvas, which that didn't really work out canvas, especially gessoed canvas is really hard to sew, especially on your hands. So I just decided to make my own. My first one was on a pillowcase and I had never stretched my own canvas before, so I had to learn how to stretch the the fabric onto the stretcher bars afterward. So I just kind of taught myself how to do those things. But this that's a long way to say that this work is about my experience as a as a mother i have since gone through a divorce so now i'm a single mom and a lot of those ideas and feelings and experiences are coming into the work as well and i think initially when i started working with fabric i was also really obsessed with the idea of scraps because i felt like i was in, in pieces also and so that was just a really powerful metaphor for me to kind of take these things that weren't needed, that were pieces of something else, and put them back together in in something new and kind of reimagining them as something beautiful. And I think that's a lot of what I look to art for in the first place. So that's kind of a broad answer to your question. With my collage work, I'm also really interested in family history and cultural history and kind of how those layer up. I am using National Geographics that I inherited from my grandparents. One of my grandmas was a school librarian for many years, and so she had this collection and and they loved reading National Geographic too. But my collection spans from the nineteen thirties all the way till the early two thousands. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just like this time capsule really. And I've had them for years, probably nine years now, nine or ten years. And I've never known what to do with them. And so I started playing around with them a couple years ago. And when you read through National Geographic, it is a, an archive of kind of this white male lens on the world. When, when you read the advertisements, when you really kind of delve into who, who they're advertising to, who they're selling what to, how they're talking about different cultures around the world, you really see how ingrained our problems, our current problems are. So that was a big starting point for me in what I wanted to say with that work. So it's really about looking at all of the ripples that have created this moment and really trying to sit with all of that as as my own cultural past. And then also uh, with my personal history, you know, my, my grandparents absorbed all of that information and passed down to my parents who did that for me. So it's the, the word groundwater is central to that work and just really exploring and, and looking at all of the connections, all of the consumption that happened to create this present moment.
0: Yeah, I love that. That image, just using the word groundwater, brings up the image of the water seeping. It's, you know, just slowly like trickling and seeping through.
1: A lot of my ideas are use language of the natural world and specifically plants. But, but yeah, I think anything we can do to connect ourselves back to what we are as as natural beings Is really powerful.
0: Absolutely. This is a little bit of a tangent, a little bit of an aside, but groundwater for me. So, my dad was an engineer for the Environmental Protection Agency and he worked with groundwater. And I remember in elementary school, he occasionally would come in and like talk to the class. Maybe it was one of those like parent, bring your parents in and talk about their jobs sort of thing. But whenever he was, whenever he was like asked to come in, he would bring this, it almost looked like an ant farm, you know, like two pieces of glass with like dirt in between Mm -hmm. that was like a model to talk about groundwater. And he would pour water in and like show us how it like goes down into the, and like makes all these little paths in the dirt. So I just as soon as I hear that word I think about that. <laughs> I want to see that. That's amazing. Yeah, I feel like I need to I need to find that like I don't know where I don't know if he even has that thing anymore or if it was like not his and just from work. (laughs)
1: That's amazing. Yeah, I want to
0: see that. Yeah, so a little bit of an aside, but when you talk about groundwater as a metaphor for how information kind of seeps from generation to generation and positive or negative, you right? Know, what's what's coming through? And how do we like change that over time? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And I think too, a lot of that is connected to my experience as a parent and ugh, childhood goes so fast. I can't believe my oldest is seven already. And so, you know, it's easy to go just survive day by day without really thinking about what rituals or stories or practices or experiences I'm putting in their groundwater. And so I think this practice is also just keeping me awake to that, that that I am actively passing down things right now, whether I'm aware of it or not. And so that that awareness is really important to me. Yeah, definitely.
0: And then with your artwork, I always find it helpful just to hear... I guess a couple of things. So one is sort of your studio practice and how you fit in time to do everything. And then maybe we'll get to the other thing that I find helpful is just to talk more about like the business side of art. So maybe could you share what does a week look like for you? How do you kind of fit in making work? And what's your process like?
1: So I am, well, one of the my proudest moments of 2020 is signing a lease on my first out of the house studio. So I share studio space in northeast Minneapolis in the in the Northrop King building with five other artists. So I have my little corner in our beautifully lit room with tall windows and it used to be an old factory. So it's a very industrial space. So I come here I don't have my kids on Wednesday or Thursday. So I come here on those days. And work, and this I'm I'm really still building some of these patterns and some of these schedules for myself. But my goal for myself is to get 20 hours in the studio every week. And that I I should also mention that I am teaching part time right now, so I am a .54 FTE teacher. Mm-hmm. So during the day on Thursdays and Fridays, generally I am working in the studio. And then on weekends that I don't have my kids, I'm also in the studio. So my ex-wife and I do do co-parent, and that is allowing me some time to do my art that I didn't really have before. So I'm so far able to, to do that. And then, of course, I'm always doing artwork after my kids are in bed. Or if I, some, sometimes I'll have a large embroidery or collage just out on the kitchen table and I'll sew for five minutes here and there just when that fits. It really depends on, you know, if I'm starting a new project, I need a good five hours in the studio to really get it off the ground, sometimes more than that. But then once the project is kind of in the middle. Once that piece is mobile and I can take it home and that's when I can really spend five minutes or 10 minutes here and there. A lot of my big textile work is, oh, it just is is very labor intensive. It's all hand sewn. So one shape can take me a long time to sew onto the base fabric or, you know, one kind of part of embroidery can take a while. So it's really helpful to To have that at home with me where I can just pick it up and put it down quickly. Yeah, that really helps.
0: So does it start by selecting shapes, choosing shapes, and like, do you kind t- of tack them down and then it becomes mobile?
1: Yeah, I used to use, what's it called? I don't know the terms. <laughs> You iron it on, and it makes the fabric. Yeah. So I used to do that, and but not all of the fabrics that I choose. I sh- I also haven't talked about how I find my fabrics. I thrift everything. Everything I use is hand, which a lot of the fabrics I use have like a vintage. I don't know tone to them. Others are my own, like I've used old dish towels and pillowcases that I that are from my own home. But most of what I find is thrifted. I don't use anything new. So a lot of the fabrics I was finding are like flammable. So ironing on didn't really work, or they were too thick. A lot of them were thick enough that that backing didn't work so I started just pinning everything and then yeah going through and hand sewing each shape on so once everything is pinned I can take it home and then I kind of clamp it on the stretchers at, at a certain point so that I can start the embroidery And then really near the very end is when I staple it onto the stretchers. And sometimes I'll embroider more after that if I see something that's not resolved yet, but Most of the time when I put it, when
0: I, when the staples are in, it's really, really near, nearly done. And with the larger like pieces that are shaped that aren't a rectangle or a square, Mm -hmm. how are you? It looks like there it's just hung like with one bar at the top. Are you thinking about like shaping stretchers? or keeping it more loose like that?
1: No, I am not going to venture into shaping the stretchers. I'm, I'm actually, I don't know that I'll never do stretchers again, but I am right now very interested in forms and, and shapes that don't need to be stretched. This summer I made a work on Christmas tree skirt and that one it hangs on a central dowel and it's the skirt is kind of folded in half so it, uh, it presents like a half circle and it just, it hangs on the dowel and I love the natural weight of it and just how it, it moves a little bit when it, when it's not kind of on the stretchers. So that was a real pivotal moment for me in this process where now I'm starting to explore more base fabrics like that that kind of hold their own shape without needing to be stretched.
0: And I love that idea of like the weight of the fabric because it's I mean it's I guess fabric can be really heavy but I I think of it as this flowing light thing and I like to see that it's holding its own it has this weight but then you also see those kind of ripples. And
1: I just love the more I don't know, just the freedom of that too, of not being tied down to the to the frame of it. So yeah, I love that idea and I, I, I'm excited to pursue it more.
0: I'm excited to see where it goes. <laughs> Thank you. So the other part that I mentioned before was like the business side of art. And I'm curious where you sell your work, how you sell your work, sort of how you're handling the business side of being an artist.
1: So as so many artists, I think the business side of art has always been a blind spot for me. And it's always been like like, oh, I'm an artist. I'm a creative. I can't also be good at this other thing. And I think that held me back for a really long time. So I am really trying to turn over a new leaf in that department and really start taking myself seriously. Someone that can sell her artwork and can pursue this as a career. And that doesn't have to mean, you know, starving and not having a home to live in or, you know, all of the kind of lifestyle things that I want for myself and my kids. So that's the first thing I'll say. The second thing is just that it's a complete work in progress right now. That is kind of where my head is, but I have a lot of work to do in developing that I sell some work on Instagram. I used to have an Etsy site a long time ago when I was embroidering jewelry. That was more work than making the jewelry itself. Then I had a big cartel site for paintings. That was a a little bit more successful, but again, it just wasn't for me. This more recent work with textiles, I have had some success selling just directly on Instagram. So that's been good. I also have just my own personal website now. And I don't have a shop set up and linked to that. But people can find me that way and message me about buying work. I've done some commissions just through Instagram followers and and acquaintances and friends. And then most recently, I think one of my biggest wins of 2020 is that I am now officially represented by the Stay Home Gallery, and that will start in 2021. But that's the first time that I'm going to have mentorship and just a business relationship of partners in trying to find buyers for my work and I just am so, so excited for all that I'm gonna learn for just that next level of getting my work out there and learning what this path feels
0: like and looks like. That is so exciting. It's <laughs> and I feel like the, the mentorship aspect of it is huge. Especially for, like you mentioned at the beginning, that it's a blind spot. It's like a challenge, all of the business side of this. So having some support there is, is really, really wonderful.
1: Yeah. I think when I was a really young artist, I just kind of accepted my, I don't know. Any door that I saw as closed, I just accepted that. Like, I wanted to go get an MFA. And I think I went through one round of rejection letters and said, okay, that's not my path. And, you know, I could spend a lot of time on what if I hadn't accepted that. I think I was always supposed to be an art tutor. So I'm okay with that. But I just, you know, I think I'm old enough now to start questioning some of those closed doors and and learning that I can open those for myself. And the more I connect to other artists, the easier that seems and the more accessible the art world feels.
0: Yeah, I love that. Kind of pushing those doors open for yourself. Would you have, I know, like you said, it's all a work in progress, but I feel like it's helpful just to hear even, you know, to hear from people who are like in it right now, if you have any tips for other artists, maybe what would you tell yourself like five years ago?
1: I would say connection has to, for me, my gateway into this like next level of calling this my art career and pursuing this as my art career it's all centered around connection for me. It has all been about de-isolating myself. And the more I connect with people, whether it's through Instagram, like if I really connect with some art that I see or what, what somebody writes about their art, sending them a message and just connecting. I think so many walls that are up are so imaginary and When you send a message and connect with someone, you really break those down. The other thing that I really have benefited from is it's hard right now, but trying to connect locally too, it can't all be online. At least for me, it can't. I need some in-person or some local connections as well. So anytime you can attend an artist talk, I went to several artist talks last winter and maybe even the winter before. And that just helped me, again, see artists as real people and not these like unicorns that uh, either are magical or aren't. It's just like there's so much demystifying that had to happen for me to see myself in that role as an artist pursuing a career in art. So the more I can meet people and... And connect and talk with them and ask them what their strategies are or just listen to them. That's that's where I find the most success.
0: Yeah. And I feel like that's what we do. Like it it comes full circle. That's kind of like what we were talking about doing for our students. And
1: yeah, also
0: something we have to do for ourselves.
1: Yeah, I think that's another thing that happened with Tab for me. Is that when I was teaching uh, in a teacher-directed approach where I was asking students to all work on their one isolated artwork, I was upholding all of those walls. I was really making an environment where you either were successful at a process or you were not. There was no room for, oh, use your skills over there on that. Or what if the two of you got together on something? That would be amazing. In the TAB classroom, all of these connections formed completely organically based on friendships, based on whoever happened to be at the Fiber Center at the same time. Kids kids have this natural curiosity and natural collaboration that kind of spark new things for each other and that is so valuable and that's that's what I hope to see in my art career too is is being able to work with artists in that kind of way where we are all all connected and all working kind of together obviously in our own processes but within within similar goals or within within our communities.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I'm excited to collaborate. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay. I have a few fun get to know you questions. One that's very broad, so you can answer this however you want. What are you curious about right now?
1: Oh wow. So many things. You know, one thing that I'm very curious about is my own art practice. Right, I I kind of mentioned that I'm moving from work that's stretched on stretcher bars to to work that's not. In my newest work, I'm also really thinking about what if it was a sculpture or just different kind of final products than than I've ever done before, just rethinking I don't know, the, the ways that I'm using my materials. So I guess I'm super curious about fabric and texture and all of that and how it goes together to kind of say what I want to say. So I'm, ex- I'm excited to keep exploring new processes
0: in the coming year. Ooh, I like the idea of moving more sculptural. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> okay, just a fun kind of silly question. What is your favorite food? Mm, croutons. Croutons.
1: <laughs> yeah, I would eat them plain without a salad, but salad is great, too. I am a vegetarian, so I eat a lot of salad.
0: Oh, I love that. That crunch. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I In fact, I love any kind of crunch. That's definitely
1: a go-to for me.
0: And is there anyone that you would like to give a shout out to or thank? Yeah, I would love to thank the, the
1: artist mother community and the stay home gallery community. i I really both, like I said, connection is everything to me as an artist right now and both of those communities have provided so deeply for me in this in this time. I think I discovered the artist mother podcast about, I don't know, maybe six months before. My ex-wife and I separated, and that became just like a very important part of that time for me of feeling connected and part of something, even in the midst of such personal life turmoil. So, Kaylin Butine and and Pam Marlene Taylor, thank you both for for that ray of hope during this really dark time for
0: me. And I would thank them both too. Uh. <laughs> and I also I mean
1: they're both very inspiring to me just because they have taken on creating community as much as they have taken on their own art practice. And I I only hope that I can create some of the community that they have through my art practice. I feel like that if we can all focus on community creation and community healing and community connection, the world will be a much, much more joyful place to be a person.
0: Yes. Oh, yes, definitely. Okay, last thing. Where can our listeners connect with you online? Thinking of connection. Yeah,
1: My website is jessicakitzman.com, and then my Instagram handle is jessicakitzmanzylum. And I'm mostly just on Instagram. I really don't use Facebook or Twitter or any other social media
0: platforms. Cool. And I will link to you and everybody can go see the work. You should go look at it and you can reach out to Jessica through Instagram or through the website. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing so much with us. Of course.
1: Yeah. I would love to connect with any other art teachers or anyone considering a career teaching art
0: thank you so much for listening as always you can reach me at teaching artist podcast on instagram or teaching artist podcast at gmail.com who do you want to hear from please share your recommendations of teaching artists And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you.